we come to the close of our series here on Genesis 1 through 12, looking at uh, the God of the ages, the God that has spoken to us from these epochs of time that begin with huge events on the world scale. And the event that we look at here this morning compared to the Tower of Babel and the flood and things like that is so small, is so seemingly insignificant But yet it has more of a resonating force and a life-changing movement for billions of people since then than any other event that we have looked at in Genesis 1 through 11. You know, a a young man was wondering, uh, how is it that I'm going to make my fortune one day? How is it that I am going to finally become rich? And he, and he found an, an older gentleman that, that they were, they were uh, just uh, were getting to know each other a little bit. And this, and, and this older gentleman was, was very well-to-do. He had obviously built his, his wealth and he had built his, his empire uh, of, of uh, merchant uh, work over a great amount of time. And, and so this young man thought he'd pick this older man's brain about this. And, and he asked him, Uh, how it is that he made his fortune, how it is that he established himself financially like that. And the man responded, he said, well, son, it was 1932 in the depth of the Great Depression. And I was down to my last nickel. He said, I invested that nickel and bought an apple, not a computer, a fruit. And I spent the entire day polishing that apple. And at the end of the day, I sold the apple for 10 cents. The next morning, I invested those 10 cents in two apples. I spent the entire day polishing both of them and sold them at 5 p.m. for 20 cents for the two of them. And I continued this system for a month, and by the end of which, I accumulated a dollar and 37 cents. The young man leans in and says, so this is how you built your empire? He says, heavens no. My wife's father died and I inherited a million dollars and went from there. We have this term in our culture, old money. Okay, in the United States, that means a family that's been rich, affluent for several decades. The money has kind of passed from one generation to another. In, in Europe, this is uh, uh, old money. You don't, wouldn't be considered old money unless your family has had it for several centuries. You know, passing down just one generation after another. But, but, but what we understand is old money. We need to understand in scriptures... In the scripture, the real wealth of the scriptures is what we have in our relationship with God. And you see, in the scriptures, there is old grace. Old grace. Followers of Christ have an inheritance of grace looking forward to an eternity in God's presence. But that inheritance of grace has been passed down from one generation to another. And we know this from the New Testament writings about following Christ. Colossians 3 tells us, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
You are serving the Lord Christ. And we don't think often about how we are connected from the, to the saints of all time in receiving this inheritance. Colossians 1 tells us that God the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have a connection with the saints of the Old Testament, saints of the New Testament, saints of today as receiving the same eternal inheritance one day. And the first saint to experience God's grace as a promised inheritance, I would argue, was Abraham. Galatians 3.18 talks about this inheritance and talking about Abraham talking about if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's, let's just recall Genesis 11, that first part of Genesis 11 that we left off with leaves us with a mankind that's dispersed and separated by language and by culture. That, that epoch of diversity began with the, the, the spreading out of mankind after the Tower of Babel when God, God came down and confused the languages of mankind which led to the diversity of culture and such that we see today. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 was that an offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman, a descendant of, of mankind would finally come one day and crush the head of the serpent that, that being that, that separated was, was, was used as a tool to separate us from God because of sin. But how would that promise of the offspring of the woman be carried or recalled amidst such diversity of mankind? The answer is that God had to graciously break through to someone. God had to graciously break through and let them know you will be the one. You, through you, this promise will be fulfilled and that man is Abram and the epic that begins with Abram's relationship of faith in grace through faith with God is an epic of an inheritance of grace an inheritance bestowed in grace and an inheritance made up of grace that all those who follow Christ from that point forward have as our common inheritance with each other. We share in that epic that began with God's calling and of Abraham and Abraham's response of faith. And so we read of this in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, and, and understand, this is out of the blue. You can see Chapter 11, the rest of chapter 11 is, is tracing the line from Shem to Abraham, known as Abram at this time. And then out of the blue, we read verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham lived with his family in the city of Ur. Ur was the center of moon worship. Abraham was a happy, moon-worshipping pagan living comfortably with his extended family. But Abraham responded in faith. He obeyed God's call to follow his promise. The historian uh, Barosus mentions Abram. He says, In the tenth generation after the flood, there was among the Chaldeans a man righteous and great. And Josephus gives us an understanding of what Abraham proclaimed to others. Josephus writes, He was a person of great shrewdness, both for understanding all things and persuading his hearers, and not mistaken in his opinions, for which reason he began to have higher notions of virtue than others had. He determined to renew and to change the opinion all men happened to have concerning God. For he was the first that ventured to publish this notion that there was but one God, the creator of the universe. You see, this new opinion that, that Abraham developed because of God showing up and speaking to him was what we call monotheism. One God. One God over all. It's the belief in one true God rather than a pantheon of competing or cooperating deities and spirits. Another um, uh, B.C. historian writes, Nicholas of Damascus writes, in the fourth book of his history, he says this, Abram came in with an army out of the land of Ur. The Bible Knowledge Commentary poses that Abraham traveled to where God had commanded him and he actually gained converts as he went. And Genesis 12, 1 through 3, shows us that God graciously revealed himself to Abraham. That he, the, that the offspring of the woman, the serpent-killing Messiah, was going to come through Abraham's line. So what were God's gracious promises to an unexpecting pagan? First, a land. He would have a land. His descendants would have a land. And as God reveals himself further in the following chapters to Abram, he, 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 he expands his explanation of this to Abram. Once he arrives with his family and his comrades, God says, this land I'm going to be giving you. Later, God describes the land as all the land that you see. Uh, later, he says the whole land of Canaan. And eventually, Abram is told the literal landmarks of the land for his descendants. And I have a little map up here. You can see here, he tells him that it will be from the, the Nile, the river in Egypt to the east, to the Euphrates, which is, it moves into Iraq. It, it, it engulfs all of the Arabian Peninsula, which is today Saudi Arabia. That is the land that God is talking about to Abraham. So he promises him a land, and he also promises him to be a great nation that will come from him. Notice the resulting clause of all of this here is so that you will 
be a blessing. And it's always been the purpose of God's calling for his privileged people to himself, that they would be a blessing to the world. And the rest of Genesis focuses in uh, the chapter 13 through chapter 50 focuses into the minutia of Abraham's descendants. That Abraham would have a promised son, Isaac. That that promise would carry from Isaac to his son, Jacob. And Jacob would have 12 sons, which make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Jacob prophesies concerning his sons and specifically about Judah, that it would be from Judah the scepter would not pass from Judah, signaling that the Messiah himself would come from Judah. And, and the, the theme of the rest of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is all about Abraham's descendants, Israel, becoming that nation. They would need a land. They would need people. They would need a culture. They get, they, the land is promised to Abraham and his descendants. This is why they're always heading from Egypt forward to the promised land. The people would be supplied after 430 years of slavery in Egypt. They would come from there almost like living in an incubator with a people three million strong. And a culture would be supplied through the Mosaic law. They would become a nation having a land and a people and a culture. And thirdly, God promises Abraham a great name. Abram would, would, he would have his name changed from Abram to Abraham during one of God's elaborations of his promise to Abraham. And we can read this in Genesis 17 where he says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. You know, the builders of the Tower of Babel were determined to make a name for themselves. But God's plan with Abraham is that God would make his name great. It's more than just changing his name. Today, Jews and Christians and Muslims claim Abraham as the father of their faith. Okay, so if you're not aware, uh, Jews and Christians rightly so believe that Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. And, and Muslims claim that Ishmael was the promised son of Abraham. And so thereby, both strains claim Abraham as their father. Half of the world's population aligns with either Christianity or Islam. And that means that half of the world considers Abraham as their spiritual father. How's that for a great name? God's covenant relationship with, God, uh, with Abraham was further explained and elaborated in later interactions with Abraham. He shows them that it is an unconditional covenant. Uh, in the actual covenant ceremony that takes place in Genesis 15, it was a cultural ceremony in which they took animals and they, and they cut them in half and they separated the parts of those animals. And as a part of this covenant ceremony, both individuals involved in the covenant would walk between 
the, the path, walk down the path made by these separated animals. But we read in verses 17 and 18, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch rep- representing the presence of the Lord passed between these pieces by himself. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Hebrews 16, 6.13 says, God swore by himself, making a, it a unilateral covenant. So God's covenant with the physical ancestry of Abraham are absolutely sure. Israel remains God's privileged people unconditionally. And it's an everlasting covenant. Abraham was fretting one day about the fact that he was yet to have children. And in Genesis 17, verses 6 through 8, God, God uh, promises the, a treasure to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings in the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Israel has today still an unconditional and an everlasting covenant with God to be his covenant people. But what affects us more than anything from this is the tail end of God's covenant with Abraham, which he reiterates several times as he elaborates on his relationship with him. But he says, and and it it amounts to that God's blessing of relationship is available to everyone, not just the physical descendants of Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Talk of blessing and life from God's blessing is is a major theme throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Originally, it's associated with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That that is where God's blessing of life was going to be flowing from. Then it was the ark. That life would come through salvation from, from horrific judgment. And here we see aligning with Abraham and his line, his relationship with God. The, he, through his line would come the one who would crush the serpent. That, that it is the blessing that comes through Abraham that life is available to all men through. As one person writes, to bless or curse Abraham was to bless or curse Abram's God. Essentially, to bless or to curse means to believe or to disbelieve the gospel. What God has offered the world through Abraham. To be like, I don't need that. What do I need with that? It's like to say, you know what? Go to hell with it. I don't care. That's what cursing is. The blessing for all people is the opportunity to be included in Abraham's family. The coming Messiah would come through Abraham's line. Salvation for anyone who believes. 
And the grace-filled relationship with God became the inheritance of all those who believed God as Abraham did. Maybe you have a song running through your head. Maybe you don't. Father Abraham, you know, had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Why can we say that? I am one of them. I am one of the sons of Abraham. See, the gospel tells us that even without being a Jew, even without being the physical offspring of Abraham, we Gentiles also can join in the inheritance of Abraham. That inheritance of grace and a relationship with God came to Abraham just as it does for us through faith. Concerning all that God had promised, the statement is made in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. It was upon Abraham's faith that God's grace had come to him, counting him righteous so that he might have a relationship with God. And we read in Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. All the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. How, where's the gospel there? Where, where is God saying, okay, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die on the cross and, and he's going to pay for the sins of all. The gospel was preached to Abraham in that the coming Messiah would come through his line and that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That's what it says. The gospel says to preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, the, the scattering at the Tower of Babel seemed to make it harder for man to stay rightly related to God. But through his relationship with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, God was shaping the gospel. And from the beginning, It was the gospel of grace through faith in the Messiah. And now the gospel allows for anyone of any culture, language, nation to know God. Now it has been fully revealed. Now it has been fully explained that that one who was going to come, the seed of the woman that was going to crush the head of the serpent, was going to do so by dying that he was the only one that was going to be able to crush the head of the serpent. He had to be God himself. But also being God himself made his almighty, eternal life capable of being poured out for us and covering our sins. That in receiving Christ as our Savior, we could apply his righteousness to ourselves. See, all Abraham knew was there was a coming one. There was one coming that's going to make everything right. And we now on the, our side of the cross know how he did it. 
And we put our faith in him still. And then the details of his redemption. And how should we be challenged to change from Abraham's experience with God? How should we be challenged? You know, I appreciated something I read from Jim Cimbala uh, this week. Our great fear as pastors should not be that people leave our church, but that they would stay in our church and remain unchanged. How should we be changed? By what we learn about Abraham's relationship with God, by what we see as an epic of an inheritance of grace that begins in this moment in God calling someone out to be in special relationship with him. Let me ask you, when did God say to you, today I'm adopting you. You're going to be my child forever. When did God say to you, there's nothing you've done to deserve this relationship with me. It is unconditional. Or there's nothing that's going to change this relationship that I have with you. It is everlasting. That is the first and foremost, the most primary, the most foundational way that we should be changed from seeing this relationship that God spoke into Abraham's life when he was a godless moon worshiper in the city of Ur. Not deserving this relationship with God in any way that we should recognize that is the kind of relationship that I should have with God. If I think I've earned it in some way, I don't have it. If I think I'm in the process of earning it right now, I don't have it. When have you seen God speak into your life and say, I'm making you my child for no other reason but that I love you and I've sacrificed my son for you? That is the relationship with God that you should be receiving. But I challenge you specifically here this morning, as Abraham's offspring, knowing Christ as your Savior, if you know Christ as your Savior in that way, believe God and act in faith. We see right off the bat, the beginning of the next verse is, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Because because Abraham believed God. And it had been counted to him as righteousness. And that resulted that he believed God and he acted in faith. This wasn't the mobile or the individualistic culture of our day, okay guys? I mean, Abraham risked the ruin of achievement of his personal dreams. But we read in in Hebrews 11.1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of of things not seen. You see, faith is living assured and with conviction, with this, which is actions, which is behavior that acts upon that faith that we say, that we believe. And Abraham showed that faith. They showed that faith means obeying God, the God that we say that we believe. We read in Hebrews 11.8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
It actually explains Abraham's faith in the fact that he went out. He's like, I believe that this is my inheritance. This is what God has called for me to receive. I think I've got something pretty good going on here at Ur. But this God has spoken into my life. This God has come into my life. The God of the whole earth I'm in relationship with. And whatever it is that he says he's got for me over there, I'm willing to go. He went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham was told to leave his country, his people, his father's household, his belief system. One writer says, Abraham was a middle-aged, prosperous, settled, and thoroughly pagan. The wor- when the, at this time, the word of the Lord came to him, and he responded by faith, and obediently left everything to follow God's plan. And that is why he's the epitome of faith in the Bible. Picture the child standing on the side of the pool, all right? The dad's in the water. He's treading water. He's like, son, I love you. I've got you. Jump, and I'll catch you. That child can say, I believe you. I want to. But they really mean it if they don't jump in. I believe you. I want to. I want to be there where you are. But they really mean it if they don't jump in. To believe is to trust, is to obey. How do we believe God and act in faith? See, like Abraham, God calls us to trust him with our lives, to risk the ruin of our dreams. We've talked before about how effective repentance, when we recognize that we need to change, that God needs to change us, effective repentance happens in three stages. First, we have resolve. We have resolve. This needs to change. Second, we need to replace the lies that we're believing with truth. And thirdly, we need to repeat and that's most often by accountability. But, but so often, when we say we believe something, but we're not acting on it, we need to really look at those lies that we're believing. There's usually some lies there. And usually when we get to the bottom of it, we might need to repent of unbelief. That we don't really believe God. We don't really believe that he's going to show up the way that he says he will. We don't really believe that we can make it without this thing that we're tempted to go after. We need to believe him. Let me ask them, what initiatives have you been saying, yeah, I should really do that? You've been saying it for years. I want to challenge you. Write them down. List them off. And pray about them. Lord, Is this from you? I love that prayer. If it's conviction, let it stay. If it's condemnation or if it's guilt, take it away. And if it's still there after a time of praying about it, just do it. Just do it. Secondly, we should be challenged to ignore the circumstances and trust God's promises. You know, we we read in... um, uh, Genesis 12, 
verses 5 and 6, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And it was likely that this was a center of Canaanite worship. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. He gets there, he's like, uh, it's inhabited, Lord. It's inhabited. He left the comfort of the familiar, and Canaan is full of, of, of people, not just people, they're idolatrous. He's moved from moon worship to the fertility cults, an incredibly immoral, degraded society of religious immorality. And when he's growing old, Abraham still had no children. And we read in Genesis 15, it says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the Lord reiterates his promise to him. Telling him, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, if you're able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. Let me ask you something. Can you number the number of people that have believed in Christ and trusted him as their savior since Abraham's time? No way. And that is the, the, the offspring of Abraham. Still at his death, Abraham had one promised son, Isaac. And his real estate amounted to a cave that he had bought to bury his wife Sarah in. Ignore the circumstances and trust God's promises. Hebrews 11 tells us how we should know that it is common for those who walk in faith that they have to ignore the circumstances and trust God's promises. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Remember the definition of faith? It's the conviction, the assurance of things unseen. And so many of, for Abraham and all the others that that are listed off in this hall of faith of Hebrews 11, they didn't receive on this earth what they were promised. They greeted it from afar, it says. You know, an inheritance typically becomes ours when someone dies and leaves it to us. There's an element of waiting, of anticipating. And the relationship with that person should be more important than anything that might come our way when they die, right? I mean, that's a given. The type of inheritance that Abraham passed on to the believer in Christ is an internal inheritance of grace. Now we walk in relationship of trust and obedience to God, our life of faith. But a relationship with God is more important. That relationship now should be more important than the pleasures or the riches or the exalted glory that we look forward to in heaven. But still, all the same, it's eternal. There is no way that the wealth of our inheritance could even translate to earthly value. I mean, think of like currency exchange. And if somebody's like, okay, well, I've got these pesos, you know, how many, or I've got this dollar, how many pesos can I get for this? It's kind of, think of it this way. It's kind of like when, when it's like, God, can I just get a little bit of it now? He's like, there's nothing on this earth 
that is valuable enough to exchange for you to get a little bit of that eternal inheritance now. It's impossible. It's that way for Abraham, and it's that way for us. But thirdly, I challenge you, set up your tent and build your altar. We read later in chapter 12, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, as we mentioned, and the Canaanites were in the land there. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Some pretty predominant people groups here. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We'll read later when, when Abraham moves to, his, uh, to give his nephew Lot the choice of the land and he moves to a different land uh, within uh, the land of Canaan still there. In Genesis 13 we read, Abraham moved his tent and, came to the, and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And when it describes in chapter 12 him calling on the name of the Lord, this can be understood as Abraham proclaiming God, proclaiming God as the, the God of the whole earth, proclaiming his God that he's bringing with him. Now, that might sound strange. I mean, we know that, that, that people bring like little shrines. They bring like little statues or something. It's different for, God, for Abraham to move into Canaan and say, yeah, my God is here too. You might be like, well, where is he? Pull, bring him out. No, no, no. He's not a little idol. I don't have to carry him with me. Wherever I go, that's where he is. That's very offensive to these Canaanites. Very offensive. You see, in animism, they worship the gods or the spirits of that land. They worship, each people have gods or spirits that they believe that they have conjoled to be their god or to be their spirit. And they might be able to kind of take them with them, but usually it's tied to that land, it's tied to that mountain, it's tied to that river. But over and over again, we see in the Old Testament and beginning here, the, what, what Abraham was believing is that there is a God of the whole earth. And wherever I go, I can set up his altar and I can meet with him there. In fact, um, when it says that Abraham called on the name of the Lord, Luther translated this, he preached the name of the Lord. And this is very likely the case that he was proclaiming the God that he worships. The God that I worship with this altar is the God of the whole earth. He was the God back in Ur, and he's the God here in Canaan. This would have been considered arrogant, even dangerous, almost daring the surrounding people to try to topple his God. Because they would have felt like, we're on our home turf. We are where our spirits are strong. Our gods are strong here. How dare you come in and claim he owns this land? I appreciate what Warren Wearsby says about this idea of set up your tent and build your altar. He says, Abraham did not hesitate to confess his faith before the heathen in the land. Wherever he went, he pitched his tent and he built his altar. You know, 
Uh, it's happened for me. Uh, and I've had times when uh, God would, would pick our family up and move us, and I'd look at my home and I'd think, oh, I'd be so grieved. I'd look at all the work that I'd put into it, all the care, all the detail and things. I'm kind of a detail-oriented person in that way. And I'd almost be grieved to be called to follow God, to proclaim Him somewhere new. And I've learned not to make so much of an emotional investment in that home, even though I, I still love to tinker with it, improve things. For our family, Investment in the worship of God means being willing to pick up and go. And, and it is such a blessing to be somewhere where you know God has called you for a long, long time. But we know what it means to be dedicated to the lives of His church, to, wor- to, to, to Him being worshipped by His people. What are you about? How does the investment in your home compare with your investment in the worship of God? How does it compare in terms of your thoughts, your prayers, your money, your time, your effort? How does your tent compare to your altar? From your neighbor's perspective, which is more important to you? I mean, I would assume nobody has an altar in their backyard, right? No need for that. But can they, can they see that you're a worshiper of God? Do you talk with them about Jesus or about your house and your car and your kids? What would your neighbor say? That you're more invested in your tent or in your altar? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much. For bringing to this earth an inheritance of grace that we take for granted, Lord. We don't think about how it would have been for no one to know you. For no one to be be walking with you. And then for you to finally break through to one person. Lord, we think of Hebrews 12. They were surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. These, these Old Testament saints that we have this common inheritance of grace with. And Lord, thinking of them, I pray that you would help us to press on toward the upward call of following Christ, that we would lay aside every hindrance and that we would run the race unhindered for your upward calling, Father. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to